Sapolsky from the McIver Institute, and welcome to the McIver Newsmakers podcast. We're joined today by Ryan Walsh, an attorney here in Madison, who is going to share his insider perspective into the U.S. Supreme Court and the Dobbs decision. Ryan, thank you very much for being with us today. Hey, can you just give us a little bit of your uh, background on uh, this subject and how, and how you, you know, and um, your unique perspective on the uh, U.S. Supreme Court? I'd be happy to. I am a litigator, uh, primarily an appellate litigator. I practice in appellate courts, including the Supreme Court of the United States. I've followed the court since law school and uh, worked at the court between 2013 and 14 as a law clerk to Justice Antonin Scalia. And as a law clerk, I participated in the certiorari process, which is the process by which the court picks its cases. I also participated in you know, the decision-making process and the drafting process. So I'm familiar with how the court goes about its business and how we get the written products that we ended up with in the Dobbs case the other day. And because I'm a litigator, I follow the court. So I keep apprised of what's happening at One First Street. So, so what were your thoughts, you know, going back a year ago when the Supreme Court first announced that, hey, we're going to be we're going to be taking up this Dobbs case. And, you know, people started to say, hey, this might this might be that case. Yeah, it was huge news. It was earth shattering, really. It, it, the, the procedural mechanisms leading up to the court's grant were um, a little atypical in that the state of Mississippi had filed a petition for a writ of certiorari, which is a a legal phrase meaning a request that the court take the case. And in every cert petition, the petitioner here, the state of Mississippi, has to frame the questions presented. And if the court grants, it usually grants the questions presented. And if it wants to change them, it has to change the questions. And the, the question presented in Dobbs was whether um, essentially asking the justices to clarify ban- the, the status of constitutional law as to the pre-viability, post-viability line that Planned Parenthood, Planned, Planned Parenthood versus Casey had announced. And it wasn't really until the court granted and then the state of Mississippi had urged that Roe v. Wade be overruled in, in total that that was on the table, at least from a public perspective. I I assume the justices sort of knew what they were doing. But once it became clear that this was the case that was targeting Roe and Casey, that's when, you know, the rest of us felt the ruptures through the political world and and in the appellate space as well. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that, you know, that just kind of sticks out to me about the case itself is, you know, I don't know how many people realize this, but this wasn't, you know, a pro, this wasn't the state, this wasn't a pro-life group suing an abortion clinic. This was an abortion clinic suing the states. And I mean, like the ultimate situation of being of something backfiring on you, I think. Right, right. Yeah, I think a lot of pro-choice groups had a hard strategic calculation to make which is do you do you fight states that seem to be inviting fights that they can then take to the Supreme Court or do you sort of roll over and and not not start the fight that might might backfire as you say but you know you can't really coordinate a group as as large and diverse as the as the pro-choice group so it was bound to happen that somebody was going to in a red state file a challenge against one of these more aggressive uh, pro-life bills and that's what happened here now, 
a year after the Supreme Court announced that they're going to take this up, you know, that that's when the leak happened. It was just, you know, uh, last month in May. Uh, you know, what was your reaction to that? I mean, for most of us, I mean, we've never heard of anything like that ever happening. Yeah, no, I was completely shocked. I'd never heard of it happening. And and we were told as law clerks that if we ever did this, it would be the end of us. Justice Scalia would tell us, if you ever betray the confidence of the court, I will personally see to it that your career is destroyed. The Chief Justice also gives a talk to all law clerks at the beginning of the term, stressing the importance of the confidentiality rules. So this is, I mean, it's wild. It's completely wild that somebody would do this. And it must be, you know, speculating, it must be somebody who thought that the benefits outweigh, outweighed the harms if they were thinking about it rationally. And the harm is that if it were a law clerk or, you know, someone who intends to practice law someday, that person has to worry seriously about whether he or she is going to have a bar license. Because I think if the investigation shows that it was a law clerk, I think the chief justice of the United States is going to um, drop the hammer on that person. You know, one of the news stories that I read over the past week or two, I, I would, you know, I can't remember what source it was, but it was essentially that now that Politico, you know, got this, this great leak and, you know, they were able to broadcast it over the world, they can expect more leaks like this to come. Have you, do you keep touch with anybody still in, in the Supreme court that, you know, can give some insight of like, what the heck's going on there? Like, has, has, is it, are, are, are people put on notice, or is this kind of like, eh, I guess that's the way it is? No, no, people are definitely put on notice that if you do this, it is, you know, it's the, it's the you get the professional death penalty. If you do this, it, it could mean the end of your career, um, which is why there's an investigation. I've read in the news, maybe the same as you, that the chief is moving you know, pretty aggressively to collect cell phones and, and look at records to, to figure out who did this. And, you know, we should keep in mind also, it wouldn't have to be a law clerk. It could also be somebody else who works at the building, including a justice. So I assume the chief and uh, his team are looking at all the possibilities. Now, getting into the Dobbs decision itself, you know, what is the, um, could you just give us kind of a legal breakdown of, you know, what it did, how it did it, and, you know, how, how Roe kind of, you know, was, was vulnerable to this in the first place. Yeah, so Roe, even at the time it was decided in 1973, was hugely controversial. As the court explains, nobody until 1973 had thought that there was some right, whether constitutional or common law in origin, to an abortion it wasn't until the court announced such a right that it became uh, part of the the legal discourse or political discourse. And, you know, since 1973, the right has been affirmed uh, on, on different grounds by the court in Planned Parenthood, put, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, where the court said, well, we're not going to do the trimester approach anymore, where uh, we balance the interests of the of the parent and the, and the state in the various trimesters, but we're instead going to draw a line at viability. And, you know, since then, it's remained hugely controversial. Many states have passed pro-life laws uh, meant to sort of chip away or challenge the, the logic of Roe. And, you know, March for Life has happened every year. Abortion has made it into the political platform of the two major parties probably every year. 
So, uh, yeah, it's that's how we got to this point. You know, and, and like going, you know, to, going to the original Roe versus Wade decision, the idea that you know the Fourteenth Amendment uh, is you know right to due process, so that means rights with privacy, which means right to an abortion. I mean, how, how does that? How does one flow into the other? And you know, a pro-life person that hears that is, well, what about the due process of the child? <laughs> yeah, right. So to unpack it a little bit, this is this is confusing even to lawyers who follow the doctrine, uh, to say nothing of non-lawyers who don't don't follow this stuff. The idea in 1973 was, according to the Roe Court, that there are various amendments in the Bill of Rights that seem to implicitly protect or recognize a right to privacy. And I think they mentioned as many as six amendments. So, so they're really throwing everything against the wall and seeing what sticks. But they focus on the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, which applies to the states. And the due process clause forbids the state from depriving any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And the traditional historical understanding of what the due process clause does is it affords everyone a procedural right, which is, in other words, that the state can take away your life through the death penalty or your liberty by you know restricting how you engage in business or your property by you know condemning a dilapidated home or by taking your property to build a highway it can do all those things but it has to afford you due process before it does it so you need to be you need to be given a hearing you have to have the right to um, argue that the state can't do it, that the state has made a mistake, that they're condemning the wrong property, et cetera. You have to be given all the process that we Americans think is inherent in the American judicial system. But there came to be this idea of substantive due process, which is a mouthful. And as many have pointed out, it's it's something of an oxymoron because substance and process are different. But what substantive due process says is that there are things that are so important that the government can't take them from you, even if they give you process. And the doctrine actually has its roots. A lot of its defenders don't like to admit this in the Dred Scott decision preceding the Civil War, in which the Supreme Court said that slave owners have a uh, property interest in their slaves, which allows them to take the slaves to the territories and forbids Congress from giving territories the opportunity to either allow slavery or forbid it. So since Dred Scott, the doctrine has sort of developed in all kinds of ways, in some ways that, that quote-unquote, the left might like, and in some ways the quote-unquote right might like, but mostly in the, in, in the direction of the political left. And it, it's been controversial over the years whether the doctrine should be just gotten rid of entirely, which is what Justice Thomas thinks should happen, or whether it should be narrowed. And that's what the court has ultimately done in previous cases and, and definitely in this case. The court doesn't reject substantive due process. It instead says the inquiry into whether the Constitution protects some rights that it doesn't expressly mention, like abortion, the, the Constitution doesn't say anything about abortion. Uh, requires the court to look at the historical traditions and 
discern whether it was understood at the time of the founding, at the time of the ratification of the relevant amendment, that the uh, that the alleged right was implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. I guess the court says whether the right is deeply rooted in our history and tradition and whether it is essential to our nation's scheme of ordered liberty. That's the test, which is pretty abstract in that framing. But how you actually do the analysis isn't that difficult. You just you you say, what is the right at issue here? Right to abortion. And you look at the common law. You look at the treatises from leading commentators at the time the Constitution was ratified. You look at state laws. You look at state judicial decisions to try to discern whether there is this handed down right to the thing at issue. And here it wasn't particularly hard for the court to find no right in history preceding Roe. And in fact, the dissent doesn't even dispute that point. The, d the dissent defends Roe on other grounds. Now, go, you know, going into like the court workings, and I mean, it's like you said, I mean, pretty pretty well, it's a laid out argument, well laid out decision. Then we get Justice Roberts, who still can't go, you know, we always have heard that he didn't want to be the deciding vote on this issue, but he wasn't a deciding vote on this issue, and he still didn't go along with it. So what exactly is his motivation and, uh, you know, that, that led him to, to, you know, side with the opposition? Yeah, so, of course, I don't know his motivation, nor does anyone really, except he and maybe his his wife and his good hmm. friends but i can tell you what he said and this is very consistent with what, how the chief describes his jurisprudence generally he is a minimalist which means that if it is not necessary to decide a question it is necessary not to decide the question that's what he says he says that here he says that in other cases and so he would prefer not to do anything drastic if a case can be resolved on narrower grounds. Now, the problem he had here is that no one thought there were narrower grounds. The Solicitor General of the United States, which represented the Biden administration's interests, uh, the, the other side of the Planned Parenthood entity in, in the Mississippi case, nobody thought you could uphold Mississippi's law without basically overruling Roe and Casey. In fact, that's probably why the law was passed, to go back to your earlier question. To, to, they wanted to tee up the question. Mm -hmm. But Chief, in his, you know, in, in his minimalist desire to avoid the, the big ruling that, that was handed down the other day, came up with his own rationale, which is that, well, we can, we can partially overrule those cases by saying they were wrongly decided, but, but we can still stop short of saying there is no right to abortion full stop we can say you know under those cases there's a there's a right to choose and we don't have to we don't have to strike down this law to say there's a right to choose because you still have the right to choose in the first 15 weeks of your pregnancy whether to abort or not so that's the rationale it, the mississippi law is a 15-week abortion law banning abortions after 15 weeks and the chief says given modern realities, given that most women know they're pregnant by that point and they have a choice to make before 15 weeks, that's enough to respect the women's right to choose allegedly recognized in those two cases that I think were wrong, but I don't want to overrule because I don't think that broad step is necessary. So That's what he says. Okay. So now that the, the Dobbs decision is out, Roe versus Wade has been overturned, 
Um, you know, what are the, the left's options on this? Do, is there a route through the Supreme Court to change anything, or do they have to, you know, come at this from a different angle, like, you know, a federal law? I think there are a number of avenues on which the fight will continue to to happen, that the pro-life versus pro-choice debate will continue to wage. One is at the state level. Um, you're going to see in a lot of states, in Wisconsin and other states, an argument that the state constitution protects a right to an abortion in the same way that the federal constitution used to, at least according to Roe. And so you'll see litigation, and you'll, you'll probably see some courts, some state courts of last resort, hold that as a matter of state law, you know, the, the Michigan Constitution or the New York Constitution or the California Constitution protects the right recognized in Roe. And then that'll probably prompt an, an effort to amend the relevant state's constitution, and, and that will be the big political fight in that state. At the federal level, I haven't been following it too closely, but I understand that Attorney General Garland is suggesting that states can't uh, put any restrictions on FDA-approved abortion drugs. There's also a suggestion that federal lands be used to procure abortions, uh, which would avoid, avoid any issue of Roe and Casey and Dobbs. Um, and I'm sure there'll be a number of other suggestions. You know, Justice Kavanaugh attempted to address a few of these issues in his concurrence, which was very much a don't panic, nothing nothing to see here type concurrence. He said, you know, the Roe and Casey needed to be overruled, but there's a lot we're not we're not going to do, or at least I'm not prepared to do. For one thing, he said he doesn't think that states will be able to ban their citizens from going to other states to procure abortions. He thinks that would burden the constitutional right to travel. He thinks under the ex post facto clause in the Bill of Rights that states won't be able to criminalize abortions performed by uh, medical staff before Dobbs was handed down. So he suggests a few ways that you know, might sort of tap the brakes on efforts by states like Texas and other red states to um, move as aggressively as they can in the pro-life direction. So uh, just the, the, the one big thing that just uh, kind of grabbed my attention with the, uh, the whole maybe they could perform abortions on federal lands, would that mean like, you know, VA hospitals would suddenly become abortion clinics? I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. I don't know. VA hospitals are probably at least leased by the federal government. I don't know if they own that property outright, uh, but yeah, I, I, don't, I have no idea. It's the federal government owns a lot of land, that's for sure, hmm. and the states generally can't regulate what happens on it. Um, but then, you know, there's another there's another issue. There are all all these old federal statutory provisions that have not been in use over the past 50 years because of Roe, but that now courts will need to interpret. Apparently, there's a federal statute that forbids the interstate shipment of abortion drugs, the very same drugs that the attorney general said um, states can't prohibit mm -hmm. the use of. And I bet there will be other statutes governing what happens on federal land that will be relevant in disputes yeah. concerning that as well. You know, and like with those historical te tests as well, I mean, that'll be interesting to see how it plays out at the state level, you know, particularly here in Wisconsin. Um Legislative Reference Bureau just put out a great paper outlining the um, 
the history of the abortion ban here in Wisconsin. I mean, that, that's just something that goes right back to the founding of the state. I mean, the, the state's founders, you know, that was one of the first laws they passed. They, they made it even tougher 10 years later. Um, you know, there, there's really no question about what the intent of the founders of this state was and, how, you know, why they wrote that law the way they did. Right. Right. I think it, it would come down to a battle between jurisprudential philosophies at the court. I think those who credit the original meaning of the Constitution as governing would have to conclude, as you just did, and those who don't think that the original meaning of the Constitution is important will have to argue that over time the Constitution's meaning somehow changed, whether because it was amended in ways that suggest that it now protects this implicit right or through some other means. So, but I agree with you. Yeah, the historical record is pretty unambiguous. And then, um, you know, then we now have this issue in Wisconsin where we've got public officials who are openly saying, well, we aren't going to enforce that law. And, I mean, wh- what kind of situation is that that create here where you've got, you know, district attorneys, you got the attorney general of the state saying, eh, we don't really think that that law can be enforced. So, you know, we, we just aren't going to enforce because we don't like it. I mean, how does that... How does that play out? Don't they have a obligation to execute the law whether they like it or not? Right. Yeah, so the debate is always, you know, whether whether law enforcement officers such as the attorney general need to prosecute uh, crimes under every statute and defend every law or whether they have discretion to not apply certain laws or not defend certain laws. And, you know, this comes up in every AG race. And, you know, particularly on the left, there seems to be more of a willingness to not defend certain laws or or prosecute cases under certain laws. But, of course, the right does it, too. And the question is, is usually, is there some constitutional obligation to to pursue good faith prosecutions under all laws with the idea that the laws are the expressions of the interests of the people of Wisconsin, and you as attorney general or as prosecutor are the agent of the people, and you should take those interests as a given and pursue those interests until they change the law, and then you pursue a different set of interests. So I think that's the argument, and then I you know, I suppose that the two interlocutors in that debate can go back and forth about whether, well, the interests of the people have changed, you know, Roe versus Wade was very popular, according to some polls. You know, you can you can imagine the back and forth, but yeah, I, I absolutely see that as an issue moving forward in DA uh, contests as well as AG races. So, you know, to wrap things up here, I mean, what what can we expect to come out of this, out of the Dobbs decision? You know, in in, in the not too distant future, like, are we are we going to see like? a lawsuit straight against the state of Wisconsin for having its, you know, its abortion ban? Or, I mean, are we going to see more law? Like, what kinds of lawsuits can we expect to see? Like, how, how is this going to play out in the next few months, other than the election, I guess? Yeah. Well, you know, every everything turns into a lawsuit at some point, right? So I don't know. I don't know if there are serious uh, lawsuits in the works that, that would argue, for example, that the attorney general has an obligation to uphold this law and, and, to, and to encourage prosecutions of it and to defend convictions that are obtained under it. 
But there could be a lawsuit on that. There could be a lawsuit arguing that the the law from the 1800s prohibiting most abortions is unconstitutional for some reason or invalid for some reason. Um, you could see a lawsuit arguing that you know Wisconsin's law can't be applied to federally approved drugs. You know, I usually proceed on the assumption, Bill, that if if somebody can bring a lawsuit arguing something, they will because you know. There, there ultimately isn't perfect cohesion and organization among the, the conservative and liberal litigation groups. You know, they usually all want to get in the fight in one way or another. So that there will definitely be litigation on both sides, arguing what the implications of Dobbs are in Wisconsin and in other states. Yeah, and uh, you know, just you know, I guess as a reference, you know, for for me, Act Ten. You know, after, after that got passed, it felt like we had 10 years of lawsuits, and the only rule was you couldn't bring the same argument twice once it was settled by the Supreme Court. So, I mean, everything that, you know, people could think of, you know, seemed to be thrown at the wall. Right. And I should also mention the court does say in Dobbs that there will be some scrutiny of abortion laws going forward, but the test that the court will apply is the same test that it applies to challenges to garden variety statutes that legislatures enact and that's called this the rational basis test and that taste that test basically says if the court can think of any conceivable reason why the law would be passed and that reason is is one that generally goes to public policy considerations of the sort that we expect legislatures to be acting in accordance with then the law will be upheld um full stop and, you know, some courts apply more aggressive versions of the rational basis test. And you can imagine some judges who are you know, particularly upset about Dobbs or, or you know, determined to you know, fight against the, the swing of Dobbs in the other direction. They could hold that certain abortion laws are irrational under the rational basis test. I don't, don't think ultimately that judgment would survive appeal. Um, depending on the law, but that would certainly be one area where we could see litigation. I see. Well, Ryan, I guess if I didn't learn anything else, and if the, our listeners didn't learn anything else, uh, I, I think the, uh, the, sc- the amount of gray area in our legal process in this country is really eye-opening. <laughs> really is, yes. Well, hey, hey, was there anything else you, you wanted to mention while, um, that, that, um, you know, while I've got you on the podcast? No, I appreciate the opportunity, Bill. Thanks for having me. Well, thank and thank you very much for your time. I mean, this this has been really, um, really interesting and, and really, um, you know, I learned a lot and a lot more than just that. There's a lot of gray area in the law. Yeah, That's good. Well, thank My you. Very, yeah, thank you very much, and we'll be talking to you again sometime. Again, we were joined by Ryan Walsh, a local attorney who served as a law clerk in the U.S. Supreme Court. Thank you very much for listening to the McIver Newsmakers podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share. For the McIver Institute, I'm Bill Osmolsky.